with me today an incredible guest that I really wanted you to meet. He's a cop, a Marine, a dad, a patriot, and, uh, and now a fellow commentator and author and, uh, and a member of that retired cop club. And I really am excited to talk to you. Christopher Strom, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Betsy. It's a pleasure. So, um, first of all, I got to ask you, because everybody always asks me this, why'd you become a cop? You know, I grew up watching a lot of TV shows like most kids, and uh, I, it always had an allure to me. I really wanted to be a cop, and not just any cop. I, you know, I lived in New York, so I, I always had that influence going on as well, but I just wanted to be a cop. I thought that would be something exciting and something challenging and different every day, so it was like it was, I got to live out my dreams and fantasies in the NYPD. Thank God. And you had an amazing career. Um, you know, talk just a little bit about that because you you uh, went above and beyond. You know, your average patrol cop. Yeah, I mean, like most people, uh, you know, started out on patrol. And uh, just for your audience's uh, information, uh, and I don't know if it's like this in Chicago where you're from, but. You know, when you start out in the NYPD, you walk a footpost. You don't just get in a radio car. Um, and that's a little bit of a culture shock for some people. And, and it was a culture shock for me. Uh, I met a lot of interesting people along the way. Uh, and then from there, I did anti-crime. And then I also did uh, a robbery unit, which uh, plain clothes in both, both of the units. Uh, and the robbery unit was fascinating because we had the whole borough of Queens, which is enormous. It's not as big as Brooklyn, but it's pretty big. And there's a lot of people and a lot of uh, a lot of crime, and this was during the uh, 80s and 90s. So crack was raging and carjackings were, well, carjackings seemed to be coming back as a matter of fact, but they were pretty popular back then. Uh, and then from there, I got promoted to Sergeant and um, I got transferred to Brooklyn. So I had spent 13 years in Queens. I'd never really, other than traveling through Brooklyn, uh, didn't know much about it. And um, <clears throat> I ended up uh, going back on patrol in uniform for about six months. And then I got picked up by a narcotics unit. So now I'm back in plain clothes and I'm working with some amazing people. Um, you know, you name it, nationality, guys, girls, uh, running around doing narcotics work, which was amazing and fun. And then unfortunately 9-11 had happened and the intelligence division at the time was looking to pick up uh, sergeants and detectives because they were, you know, kind of behind the curve on things. And I, I really didn't want to go because I was having, as you say, too much fun with my my narcotics team, and uh, I was comfortable. I had steady days off. Um, you know, I was making overtime and, and more laughs than anything every day. We just made fun of each other, made fun of the situation. Just, I mean, the camaraderie, and I'm very close to these people to this day. And I end up going into uh, the intelligence division, and now I'm like a fish out of water because there's a lot of different nuances and things that go on on a daily basis uh, in the intelligence division that I wasn't familiar with. So the detectives that I was in charge of, you know, that my title was I was their supervisor, but really I was learning from them and not, not, not the other way around. And uh, and they took me under the wing and I ended up developing uh, some amazing relationships with those people as well. Now, you had this incredible police career. And uh, and like a lot of us, though, you know, you dreamed about a, a quieter retirement and, uh, and, and you really had the dream retirement all set up and, and you, you eventually did pull the pin, as we say, and uh, you, were, you, were, you moved and, and you know, you're gonna raise a family and do something totally unrelated to police work 
and then something happened. Talk about that. Well, I moved to uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and um, I, I like working with my hands. I like the feeling of making people happy about something that I built or even for that matter, looking at what it is that I've actually done. And uh, I got involved in a business with somebody and, and the relationship deteriorated. And the war at the time in Iraq was raging. And um, I was getting madder and madder by the day, actually watching it. And the primary killer of the soldiers was uh, these IEDs that were coming in courtesy of Iran. And um, they're just being, there would be nothing left. There'd be basically a chassis left of a vehicle. So I ended up applying for some jobs and I get a phone call and it was funny. I was in my basement painting, uh, which is where I am right now, actually in my basement. And uh, the recruiter asked me, uh, you know, is who you are and, you know, described the job and he said, you know, you'd basically be an advisor to like a, a brigade commander and having them look at the, uh, the insurgency problem from a law enforcement lens. And they said, is that something you'd be interested in? So I tried to temper my response by saying yes, but on the inside, I was doing backflips saying, yeah, are you kidding me? I get to go over there and chase bad guys? So I go from that to some orientation and, um, and some onboarding. And after about 10 days, I get called by the program manager and they pull me out of the classroom, myself and uh, two other guys. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I felt like I was going to the principal's office. I was like, what's going on here? He describes this program as essentially gonna be the same, but now I'm gonna be doing interrogations at the point of capture. And I'm like, is this something you'd be interested in? And I'm like, again, I'm doing backflips in my head saying, absolutely. So um, I go to some additional training for like three months and they make a composite team of primarily retired special forces operators who are very recently retired and they bring in their skill sets and I bring in my law enforcement skill sets and together we form a team called the Phoenix team. And when, once we got up and running and it took some time, um, took about six months before we had buy-in from the army, which is a, a whole separate issue. Uh, we kicked we kick these people uh, to the curb. I'm telling you, we crushed them. Um, the team collectively rounded up 91 high-value targets, tier one and tier two. So these were serious bad guys, killing soldiers, bomb makers, financiers, um, safe house people, you know, you name it, they were all part of a cell. Some of them were actually, unfortunately, we found out as as a course of doing business, were uh, actually card-carrying members of the Iraqi government in a unit called the Ministry of National Security and Affairs. So that's the equivalent of like a, a state security, like either an FBI or a CIA, which by the way, didn't exist until we got over there. So um, we set up their program and they used that program against their own citizens. They extorted people, uh, did what they call extrajudicious killings, um, you name it, uh, they, they did it and it was, Part of the program was was very successful. That part of the program made some people very uncomfortable and very nervous. Wow, that I mean, that's just incredible. And in fact, the, this experience was so incredible. Um, you decided to write a book about it, right? I did. I did. And uh, I'm not a writer by trade, but as you know, as a cop yourself, you know, you write a million reports. And uh, one thing I, I did from the very onset was I started writing even before I deployed because I knew. I wouldn't be able to keep track of this and try and recall this from memory. I'm just not built that way. And, uh, and then what ended up happening was we were doing so many missions. I did 110 combat missions and that doesn't count other ancillary jobs that I went on. And when I say by missions, I mean, I left the base 110 times and came back 110 times, thank God. Um, but you, I knew if I didn't write this down immediately, I, I was gonna, I was gonna forget it because 
the cells were so intricate and, and so diverse and so devious that I was like, no one's going to believe this. If I don't write this down now, I'm going to forget it. So, yes, I wrote a book called Brooklyn and Baghdad. Thank you. And where I want to, I want, because I just started the book this morning, I got to tell you, it's already sucked me in. We were talking about that off air. Um, where can people find that book? Because I think a lot of people would be really fascinated by what you talk about in that book. Yeah, sure. It's, it's uh, Barnes and Noble has it, Amazon. Um, my publisher is Chicago Review Press. If you go to a bookstore and they don't have it, they can certainly order it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not hard to find. Um, and, uh, if they want to, you know, reach out to me through social media and they want to sign copy, I, I can make arrangements for that as well. Now, I got to tell you, one of the things you talk about in the book is supporting your family and, and, and especially your wife. Cause again, here you are, you know, retiring, you got, you know, kids to finish raising and, and, uh, and all of that. And your wife who is spent all these years, decades as an NYPD wife. Um, now she thinks she's going to, you know, live in the country and her husband's going to do a little construction work and things. And uh, you really turned her life upside down, didn't you? I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. I have an amazing wife. Uh, you know, we're married 27 years. Um, but, you know, when I first, I don't want to say pitched it, but when I first approached my wife with the prospect of going to Iraq. And uh, I can't really say what she said, because I think you know what she said, but she basically said, you know, this is what you do. This is what you're really good at. And you love this stuff. Not, you know, it's like, it's like you never really, and, and I'm sure it's the same for you and, and, and many people, you know, you never stop being a cop. I mean, you're not, yeah, you don't wear the uniform, but you're still looking at people. You go to an airport, you go to a restaurant, you go to a shopping mall. I mean, like you, you don't turn that off. And I was still young enough where I said, you know what, I think I could, I really think I could make a difference and, you know, not change the world, obviously, but, you know, do my part. And, um, you know, thank God everything worked out and, you know, my wife supported me. And then, you know, after 15 months came back and still actually, you know, liked me. So it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, a, it's just an incredible story. So you, what was life like after you came back from, Iraq, you know, you, you saw all these things as part of the NYPD. Then you saw, all, you know, so much of the horrors of our involvement in, in the Middle East. And then again, you came back home. What was that like? Well, I had a little bit of an adjustment. Um, you know, I, I had some trouble sleeping, uh, anxious, lack of focus, um, irritable, uh, you know, all things that I wasn't even really aware that I, I was experiencing. My wife would point it out. One of the things that she pointed out to me, which is kind of funny, but not in, in another way, in a serious way, is that I was looking at my kids whenever they would tell me a story, like if they got into trouble and I would look at them and I would kind of like cock my head as if I was like trying to measure their body language and their temperament and their, their speech cadence. And my wife's like, well, you cut the crap, you're scaring the kids, stop it. And, uh, and I wasn't aware that I was doing that. One of the other problems I have is, uh, even to this day, is I'm very sensitive to noises and I'm very sensitive to people's behavior and mannerisms. And I really have a hard time taking people at face value. A trust issue, I think, might be the way to describe it. Um, and, you know, just like, you know, when you're in law enforcement, you do a, a five second psychological snapshot of somebody. And, you know, you try to be a good person on the inside and try to be a good person on the outside. And you try not to be 
judgmental. If you're a Christian, that's what you're supposed to be, non-judgmental. But every time I try and dismiss what my inner voice is telling me about this person, guy or girl, doesn't really matter. And, I am, and then I end up proving myself right that the person wasn't a good person. Then I'm, I beat myself up mercif unmercifully internally because it's like, why are you dismissing a skill set that took 20 some odd years to, to develop? You know, So that was some of the issues I was having and that kind of probably continues a little bit to this day. Not, not at the same level, thank God, but at, at some level, I'm sure it does. Well, and those, you know, that, that spidey sense or that gut, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, trusting your gut, like Gavin DeBecker says, um, that's what made us all good cops and it kept us safe. And I, I think now, and I wonder what you think about this, the younger cops are, are kind of being taught to ignore that, and, you know, you know, whether, you know, it's because we want to be more inclusive, kinder, softer, whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, we're, I think the profession is being encouraged not to be as suspicious as, uh, as we were. Yeah, I, you know, who knows what goes on the, in the academy today in the NYPD. I'm sure there's all kinds of sensitivity training and, you know, de-escalation and everything like that, which is good. Listen, more training is always a good, I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but at the end of the day, when somebody tells you I'm not going and they committed a serious crime, well, you know, the de-escalation is gone, you know, come on, just turn around and, you know, verbal commands and compliances, you know, sometimes you have to be physical and, you know, they have to know that, you know, it's up to them. What do they want? Now, what's going on in the NYPD uh, and across, across America for, the, for that matter, you know, the advent of the, um, uh, the video cameras that are now on all, pretty much all police departments have them, I think is actually great. At first, I wasn't sure, to be honest with you. But now, thank God they have not because there have been so many times where people just out and out lie about the cop's behavior versus the bad guy or bad girl's behavior. And then lo and behold, he, you know, he tried to take the cop's gun or he tried to take his taser or he punched him in the face. You know, all these different things that we would not know uh, had they not had these body cameras on. Yeah, I think body cameras really um, save our um, integrity. You know, in, in most cases, I, I'm like you, I wasn't too sure about that and wasn't sure if I wanted to ever wear one. But but I think now body cameras do the profession a whole lot of good. And I think it helps the American people see just how bad it is sometimes to be a law enforcement officer involved in a, a confrontation. I think I think a lot of just normal citizens think, oh, people can't be that crazy. People can't be that rude. People can't be that violent. And then now, thanks to body cameras, they find out that we are, uh, or that, that other people are. Now, Chris, you you lived through the whole um, uh, crazy crime days uh, of the 80s and on into the 90s in New York, and, and you also witnessed how law enforcement, not just in New York, but around the country, stopped crime. And it, we're now living in uh, Groundhog Day, basically, right? Where it's all back, it's worse. And, uh, and, and everybody, everybody's asking, gosh, what are we going to do about all this? Um, tell me your thoughts on that. Well, I, I, you know, as they say, you shouldn't try and reinvent the wheel. The wheel's round and it works just fine. And why are they not? Well, I think I know why they're not going back to the tried and true practices. But at, at the end of the day, when you have two and a half years of defund the police and the police are bad and they're throwing Molotov cocktails and bricks and God knows what else at the police, 
and the president comes out on national TV and is basically in favor of that and supporting it. Although now things seem to be changing a little bit since, uh, oh, I don't know, November is coming up and there seems to be a massive election uh, nationally. Um, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand why people would tolerate that from, from elected officials. And, you know, in New York in particular, you know, the mayor is failing by any measurement, by any metric. And uh, I've been very critical of the mayor. I've written about the mayor. I've spoken out about him on Newsmax and other shows. And uh, I, I'm waiting for him to wake up, but I, I don't think that's coming. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Do you, when, when we were seeing in the immediate post-George Floyd era, um, where NYPD officers were getting pelted with takeout food and water bottles and garbage cans and all of that, what were your thoughts when you saw all of that? Well, I mean, I came from an era, like I said, uh, you know, they started this thing back in, in 2019. I just want to give a, a brief summary of, of my thoughts on this and I'll get right to your point. They had this thing where, you know, let's go on Facebook and try and get a viral video. And one of them was called the bucket challenge where you would find a cop in the summertime and dump, dump a bucket of water on his head. Now, I could tell you from the time frame that, that I came from, from my experience in the police department, two things were probably a certainty on that. One, the person was going to be arrested. And two, very strong chance that they might not have gone straight to the precinct, but potentially to, I don't know, like an emergency care facility at some hospital. So that I don't think is happening anymore. So the fear element of cops being overly aggressive because of maybe the body cameras, because everybody is an instant superstar with a, an iPhone, I think that curtails a lot of that, but make no mistake about it. You know, the time frame that you and I were on, you know, if you had to be physical, you had to be physical. It wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't because you wanted that. I mean, if you could get somebody to turn around and put their hands behind your back, thank God, that's a win. I'll take the win. You know what I mean? But that's not what's happening today. Everybody is looking for that moment and they are out, outwardly defiant of, of the police and their hatred for the police and I blame that really, you know, at a national level and at a, at a local level. When you say defund the police and the police are bad and they're racist and we need to have critical race theory in, in schools and it, it's just, it's never ending. And people depending on their sensibilities and their level of education and their awareness to what's really going on in the world, they might actually believe that, that that's true, that police are exactly that. What do you think is gonna be the national turning point to the, the crime situation that we're seeing now? Do you think it's gonna be the election? Do you think it's gonna be something else? What's your thoughts on that? You know, I, I like to be optimistic and hopeful, but I'm also a realist. I don't think it's gonna get better. Uh, I think the election that's coming up is gonna change some things, but this, this administration, I'm speaking of the, the, the Biden administration, they, they, they are, I mean, it's almost like, it's raining outside. No, it's sunny. It's like they say the polar opposite of what it is reality is, is showing. Um, so I don't think it's going to get better until there's a new president. Hopefully that's whoever that is other than, than, than Biden and really like tries to unify this country because right now it's a mess. At, at, at any measure, this country is a mess and it's more divided than ever. When I was a young police officer, we didn't talk politics. We didn't really know what, who each other voted for. And our politics and our opinions and our views didn't matter. Do you remember those times? I, I do. I do remember that. And listen, 
I worked in New York City. So you're talking about you pick a group of people, sexual orientation, whether it's on the job or people you interact with on a daily basis. Everybody got along just fine. I don't know where this conversation started or why, um, but it, even in particular in the police department, you know, I, I did four years in the Marine Corps. So I hear there's white nationalists and white supremacy in the military. I'm like, who are they talking about? Anyone that served in the, in the military knows that those are the best people in the world. Same thing with the police, the best people in the world. They don't care anything about, as you say, politics or, or, or your personal views or your sexual, nobody really cares. They just want to know, can I depend on you? And can you depend on me? And we all went out after work and had a great time, you know, both in the military and in the police department. So I don't know where this is coming from. It's, it's really an imaginary phantom type of uh, problem that they're creating. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and uh, and it has continued to divide us. And I I do hope that that changes soon because that's that's not the America you and I grew up in, and it's incredibly no. incredibly frustrating. So I know people can see you on you know Newsmax and other channels. They can uh, hear and see you on podcasts. They can buy and read your book. Where um where else can people find you? I'm on social media under Christopher Strom. If you Google my name, Christopher Strom or NYPD Sergeant Christopher Strom or Brooklyn to Baghdad, I'm, I'm accessible. Uh, I love doing public speaking. I love talking about you know policing and I love talking about uh, my experience in Iraq, both the good parts and the bad parts. And uh, I'm happy to get on a plane or in my car and come meet people at a corporate or a private event anytime, anywhere. That's fantastic. Chris Strom, thanks so much for spending time with us today. You've been an amazing guest. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now, 